there's something powerful and exciting about seeing so many youth together. How much more powerful and exciting when they're excited about singing to our great Lord. I know that the enthusiasm will continue and the spirit will continue of this evening that's already begun as you would support Brother Doug Sovin and Brother Edmund Reinhardt in prayer as they serve us this evening. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord of hosts. Indeed, as we have heard, the, these human, frail young voices, yet to us, even impressive and, and glorious, how much more is it around about thy throne with thousands and ten thousand of ten thousands that glorify thy name? Be with us this evening, Father. Speak to us in spite of the weakness of thy servants. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this week, as we opened up the Bible classes and the forums, there were several questions that were being asked, that were being addressed, <clears throat> one of which was, does the grace of God, or should I rephrase that, does God withhold his grace from anyone? That's number one. The other thing that occurred in the Kittleberger-Meyer uh, debate was the question of evil in the world. Because there's so much evil, how can there be a God? These are very relevant questions and questions that may perhaps prevent people from coming to God because of a, a, a misunderstanding and perhaps impugning God with injustice. But as Abraham said of old, shall not the God of all the earth do justly? And with that, I'd like to turn as our base text this morning, or this evening should I say, to the ninth chapter in the book of Romans. The ninth chapter in the book of Romans. Now this chapter may seem to be somewhat out of place, but God knows what he's doing when he inspires the Apostle Paul to write this chapter. And it's in the midst of what we could call the Apostle Paul's Gospel, the gospel according to the Apostle Paul. And so before we do read, I'd like to give a bit of a backdrop by going through the book of Romans very quickly. I know Brother Sam did so in the early week. I'd like to refresh our memory somewhat. If we look at the book of Romans, you will see very quickly that the main theme, at least on the on the uh, spiritual level is, is that of the righteousness of God. There are something like 33 verses, or 36 times in 33 verses, in which the, the word righteousness is, is mentioned. Secondly, another thread, as mentioned in our forum, the Bible does not have a, a table of contents, but another thread we can see going through this book of Romans is how the Apostle Paul uh, tries to relate the Gentiles to the Jews, where they come in in history. And although the, the topics we're discussing are quite theological, yet they have great impact, as we have seen even in our midst, of how we live based upon what we know, as we mentioned in our forum as well. And so the Apostle Paul opens up the book of Romans and he says, he speaks of the grace of God by which he was called to be an apostle, separated by God. And he goes into speaking about how the, the gospel of Christ is the, the power of God unto salvation. And he agrees with the Apostle uh, Peter when the, Peter says in his epistle that man is born again by the incorruptible seed, the living word of God, which lives and abides forever. 
But he also introduces immediately another thread in verse 16 of chapter 1 where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the, to the Greek or to the Gentile. As we can see here, perhaps there was a lot of uh, um, discussion and a lot of um, uh, talk about the relationship of the Jew to the Gentile. As we see in other letters, the Apostle Paul had to come down quite harsh on some of the Jewish believers because they felt that salvation belonged to them and the Gentiles had to comply with the, with the way they worshipped God, the, the law and the format. And mind you, they were permitted to keep a, a great deal of the law even after being saved. But they were not to think that the law in any way had anything to do with their salvation. And so we see this stream of, of the relationship of the Jew to the Gentile as well as the, the idea of what makes us right in God's sight. And so he goes through the um, first chapter and he ends the first chapter starting of about verse 24 or so and he begins to tell us that God indeed can withhold grace. And when does he do that? After we heard uh, Brother Dushko the other night speaking of the greatness of God and, the, and, and his, his uh, witness and evidence in creation, when people saw that, and it says, after seeing that, they held the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, the word used there is they suppressed they pushed it down. When truth was trying to push up as God was doing it in his creation and, and, and many other blessings which he blessed everybody, they pressed it down. They refused to hear it and neither were they thankful. And on, not only that, they went further. Not only were they not thankful, but they went further into, into fulfilling the lust of their flesh and God in three occasions says in this chapter that he gave them up. He gave them up unto a reprobate mind. He gave them up to do those things which are inconvenient. And he gave them up unto uncleanness. And when God gives you up, you have to shudder. Perhaps no scary, uh, uh, frightening message that I can think of is in the book of Nahum. When, when the, the city of Nineveh was, was already given grace and spared when, when he said, God said through Jonah, yet 40 days and Nineveh is destroyed. And Jonah coming in after much resistance came in anyway and preached. They repented in sackcloth and ashes to the very least of the creatures and God spared them. And maybe a hundred years later, they forgot what God had warned them of. And they went back into sin and into idolatry and into persecution of the Israel nation. And God said, I am against thee. Frightening. God does withhold his grace. As we heard in Brother Werner's sermon, that if we have iniquity in our hearts, he will not regard our prayer. And so in chapter 2, he then approaches not only humanity in general, but he approaches the Jew. And not only the Jew, but specifically also later on pointing out those that are not under the law. And he says, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, whether you are Jew or Gentile. And you'll be judged. You'll be judged according to God's righteousness. You'll be judged according to the secrets of men. You'll be judged in several ways. And he comes to chapter 3 and he says, what then advantage has the Jew? If the Jews were God-elect people, what advantage has the Jew? You think you're something special? If you go back to the book of um, Deuteronomy in chapter uh, 7 and in chapter 9, this is God's election of Israel. He says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he, swore, which he had sworn unto your fathers hath the Lord brought you out of the, with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then in chapter 9, he says once more, Speak not thou in thine heart, 
After the Lord thy God hath cast them out, that is the heathen out of the, the, the land of Canaan, from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land, but for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out before thee. That's the, that's the first objection that someone that doesn't believe in God is going to come to you with perhaps and say, why did God kill all these people in Canaan for? The answer is here, because of their wickedness and because they were the ones that were described in Romans chapter 1 who suppressed the truth. And then it goes on to say further on, but remember, not for thy righteousness or for thy uprightness of heart, Dost thou go to possess their land? But for the wickedness of these nations, doth God drive them out from before thee, and that he hath made, uh, made perform the word which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Going back to the book of Romans... Let's go into the very first chapters and see where, uh, first verses and see what the Apostle Paul is trying to say in light of all of this. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. He's speaking about Israel. The theme hasn't changed. The theme is the same. He's speaking on how man, whether Jew or Gentile, is accepted in God's sight. He says, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I w could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What a statement. He had the heart of Moses, who when Israel had sinned in, 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 in uh, building the golden calf and worshipping it, God says, I'm, stand back, Moses, I'm going to destroy these, and I'm going to make a new nation out of you. And Moses pleaded with God. He said, God... Wipe me out of the book of life, but spare them. And God says, no, those that have sinned will pay the penalty. And he's, the Apostle Paul, can you imagine, wishing himself to be accursed. The great love he had for his nation, Israel, that he would be accursed, lose his, his, his portion in, in his eternal life, that Israel, his beloved kinsman, would be saved. And then he says, and he goes on to describe who are Israelites. This is the one that I'm talking about, the Israelites, my nation, to whom pertaineth the adoption. God said in Exodus, Israel is my firstborn. He was an adopted son to him. And the glory, the Shekinah glory that came down to Moses in the, in the tabernacle, that he came out of the tabernacle with his, with his face aglow, that the people could not even look upon him because of the glory. The, the manifestation of the presence of God and the covenants, the covenants that he had made with Abraham, the covenants that he had made with Moses and renewed with Joshua and the giving of the law as Moses received them in the mountain and the service of God in the tabernacle and the promises, all the promises of blessing if they only obeyed him. Whose are the fathers? And we have just read them in the book of Deuteronomy. Who were they? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, Joshua, all these were the fathers. David, these were the heritage of Israel. This belonged to Israel. And what was the chief uh, advantage, a benefit of the Jew versus the Gentile? Romans 3 tells us that chiefly to them were delivered the oracles of God. They were given the truth, the law of God. And then it says, of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is God blessed forever. If anyone wants to deny the deity of Christ, he has to reconcile this verse. God blessed forever. That's another thread through the scriptures. Well, the seed that Christ came through, the fathers, David we know, and so forth, all the way down to Mary and Joseph. And then he said, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. What's happened? People were asking, why are the Jews not coming? 
If the promises was given, were given to them, why have the Jews rejected Christ? Has God failed in his promises? Has God come short of his word? He says, not as though the word had taken none effect. If you go back to Romans chapter 3, he says, What if some didn't believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? People are questioning, is God's plan on track? Has God failed? He says, no, 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 you misunderstand. You don't know the scripture, nor the power thereof, as Christ said. He said, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. You think that Israel's not being saved because all of Israel's not being saved? No. Not everyone that names a name that comes under the tribe of Israel is of truly Israel. And so he starts, he starts a, 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 a ladder, if you will, of, of a sequence of events that happened through the ages. He says, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Notice he's saying children. Children who? Children of what? The later on you'll see children of the promise. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. You remember Abraham and, and Sarah were 90, 190 years old respectively before the angel of the Lord came and told them that they were going to have a son. And Abraham denied that. He, actually, he was the first one to laugh. And, and he laughed it off, and he had already a son, rather, in, in Sarah's womb, and he had laughed it off. He said, can Sarah bear a son at the age of 90? And he said, oh, may Israel live before thee, God. May Ishmael live before thee, God. Ishmael was the, was the son of the bondwoman. May he be the heir through whom the promises would come. He had already doubted God when he said, I have all this inheritance and only a child from my servants can inherit it. And then God told him, we're going to give you a son through your loins, not through your servants' loins. And then he says here that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, they are not the children of God. But the children of the promise accounted for the seed. Who are these children of the promise? Let's pursue that a little bit further. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Now, this is not the first time the Apostle Paul introduces this idea of works and grace. In Romans chapter 4, he spent the whole chapter speaking of one man, Abraham, who was justified by faith. Because the, the talk in the circles of the Jews was, unless you circumcise your children, unless you become like we are, you cannot receive grace. You cannot be saved. And here he says, he gives the, again the comparison of, of the two children in Sarah, in, in, in Rebekah's womb. For the children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Now people are going to stop right here and say, this is talking about what we call unconditional election. And kid yourself not that the, the default to that is there's unconditional reprobation. That means some will not be saved regardless of what they do. Some will not be saved, will not even be given a chance because God has already chosen those whom he wants to save individually. I've gone through enough 
discussion with false teachings that I realize there's so much more to the surface than what is written here. If you go back, and, and that is why on a topic like this, you don't take Romans 9 out of context. You don't take this verse out of context. You've got to go deeper. You've got to go into the rest of the Bible. If you go back to Genesis 25, let's see what actually happened in Rebekah's womb. Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Was God interested in individuals, or was he interested in his plan of salvation for mankind? He said there are two nations and two types of people. And if that's the intent and the context of, of Genesis 25, there has to be the same gen text and context, intent and context of Romans chapter 9. What's he saying? It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Was he talking about the individual salvation? Or was he talking about God's design on how he was going to bring the Gentiles into his covenant. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Let's not stop here. Let's go back and see what he was talking about. In Malachi chapter 1, Esau have I loved and Jacob have I hated was not stated in Genesis 25. It was stated in Malachi chapter 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and so forth. If you go back into the book of Genesis, you will see that not at one time did, did, did Esau ever serve Jacob. As a matter of fact, Jacob was so afraid of Esau, he fled to Haran. And he stayed there for 20 years. And when he came back, he realized that Esau was in the area and he split up his caravan. That in case he got one party, the other could, could escape. And not only that, he sent a messenger when he realized that he was about to meet Esau and he said, tell Esau, my brother, thy servant Jacob. That is not what God was talking about here. He was speaking about the nation of Edom. It's used interchangeably with Esau. The people of Esau was Edom. And because of their crimes against Israel, God was going to judge them. And he had already judged them in the book of Kings and Samuel and so forth. And if this scripture was speaking about salvation, because God loved Jacob, that Jacob would be saved, we can see that the Apostle Paul has already disproved that by saying that not all of Israel is Israel. Not all of Jacob is Jacob. That Israel is still being saved, but many are still rejecting Christ. To this very day. There are Jews that are turning to Christ. There are Jews that are, 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 are rejecting Christ. What he's saying is that as nations, God has chosen Israel. For what reason? To perform his glory to the world, that the world may know that through him, through Israel the person, but Israel the nation, God will show his glory. And descendants of Edom today can still be saved. 
through the same manner as the Jew, through faith in Jesus Christ. We go back to Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. What's he speaking about? Who was the one that was willing? Wasn't it Abraham that said, May Ishmael live before thee? Abraham didn't trust God when he promised that he would give him a son out of Sarah's loins. He said, take second best. And he offered Ishmael. And God said, it's not up to him that willeth. What about Esau? Esau was the one that Isaac loved because he brought him venison. The one that was going into the, into the fields, hunting game, running after game. And God said, it's not after him that runneth. Jacob got the blessing. Jacob got the blessing. Was he talking about salvation? No. What he was talking about and what he is still talking about in Romans 8 and Romans 9, he's speaking about what a sovereign God we have. You cannot tell God how you want to be saved. Because that's what the Jews were doing. They were telling God, we don't want to accept Christ. We want to show you that we are worthy of your kingdom by performing the law of Moses. And God says, I will save how I want to save. I want to save, not because you earn it, not because you will it, not because you show me some wonderful things, not because you give me your money, not because you think you're part of a privileged people. I want to save you because you trust me. You come to me for your righteousness. How long did it take Israel to learn that lesson? In the book of Jeremiah, when they wanted to go in and, and, and the enemy was approaching. Oh, they were talking about the ark of the Lord. Do they remember the stories of David and Samuel and, and how the ark of the Lord came in and, and, and delivered them because God was present there? And Jeremiah said, no more ark. And they were saying, oh, the temple, the temple, the beautiful temple will have some form of security in this temple because God is there too. And he said, no more temple. When the Babylonians came, they destroyed it. And then in my Bible and in yours, I believe, you'll see in big capital letters, it says, the Lord, our righteousness they still didn't learn and God says you don't come to me on your terms you come to me on my terms let me just to show just to demonstrate that we cannot take these verses even these verses out of context let's look at the other two dimensions in the book of um, Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul confirms it, and you can see it even just as plain. In verse 8, it says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. You remember the story of uh, Luke in, in Luke of, of, of uh, Zacchaeus in chapter 19? 
when he came and he ran up into a sycamore tree to see the Messiah coming, and Jesus saw him there and said, Come down, I must sup at your place today. And before he could open his mouth, uh, Jesus could open his mouth, Zacchaeus said, Half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've taken from any man by false accusation, I'll restore to him fourfold. Jesus said to him, Verily, today has salvation come to this house in so much that he also is a son of Abraham. What do you mean, Jesus? Weren't they all sons of Abraham? They're all Jews. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all had the faith that Abraham had. Can you see the pattern emerging? God is not speaking of predestinating individuals. He's He's speaking of predestinating a type of people, a manner of people, the children of promise. And the children of promise are they which are of the faith of Abraham. Verse 16 in chapter 3 of Galatians. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not as to, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, before the law was even, which even arrived, he made this promise that the law which came after 430 years could not disannul it. The promise came before the law. The law was never intended to save people. The law in Romans chapter 7 is very clear, was intended to transform, to transform ignorant wrong to conscious sin. Because there was a time when God winked at their trespasses as it says, I believe, in Acts chapter 17. But when the light of God comes to you and shows you plainly and convicts you, now you see yourself as a sinner before God. And there's no excuse. You can't say, I didn't know. You can't come to Eastern Camp and say, I didn't know, when you've been taught in Bible classes, in forums, and in sermons, And then, it says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 says, again, the same Apostle Paul, the same mind, the same Spirit of God, says, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, to you would, how that by revelation be made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, and now it is revealed unto his holy apostles and the prophets by the spirits, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and the, of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. The theme is the same, how God deals with the Jews and the Gentiles. Not with individuals. He used individuals, as we will see. But when it came to salvation, he talked about a class of people. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. Chapter 4. The same Apostle Paul, the same mind, the same spirit, and the same God. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. 
According to my Collins Dictionary, an allegory is a poem, an image, a saying that symbolizes a deeper truth. And he's saying nothing different in Galatians chapter 4 than he had already said in Romans chapter 9. He doesn't con contradict himself, neither does the Spirit. He's saying that there are two types of people. Those that want to justify themselves and those that want to be justified by God. The question comes in about Pharaoh. If that's the case, why did Pharaoh have his heart hardened? First of all, I want to bring to your attention that in one place it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in, in the book of Exodus. I believe in every other place it was, it was that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Secondly, when Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, there is no mention at all that Pharaoh didn't have a chance to repent of his wickedness and sinfulness. But God raised him up, just as he raised many other men in, in history, both wicked and good. But in no way detracts from the, from the concept that God gives people space to repent. Secondly, God does bring evil. But we have to look at the scripture to see how he does it. If you go back to the, to the book of Deuteronomy, see, one of the, the main arguments by those that say that God predetermines who is saved and who is not saved is that God even creates evil. And you can't say anything about that. Does that mean God's the author of sin? In Deuteronomy chapter 9, if you read further on, It says, And the Lord said unto me, Arise, get thee down quickly from thence, for thy people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image. For furthermore the Lord spake unto me, I have seen this people. Behold, it is stiff-necked people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot them out. Out the name from under heaven, and I will make of thee a nation mightier than they and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mount, and the mount burnt with fire, and the two, two tables of covenant were in my hands. God was punishing these people for their sin. God, as he has given life to man, is able to take life away from man. In another verse, it says that God brought these diseases upon them as evil. In Isaiah 45, in another monumental chapter that speaks about his sovereignty, it says, And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called even thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee. And though thou hast not known me, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou knowest thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. 
Where in all of Scripture have we seen that God had, was the author of sin? The evil that he is speaking about here are the catastrophes that he brought upon nations because of their sin. Whether it was pestilence, whether it was disease, whether it was earthquake, God brought this evil. But it wasn't sin because God cannot sin. I want to also point out a couple of scriptures in the book of Chronicles, which may seem a contradiction to many. In Chronicles 21, 1 Chronicles 21, when David had numbered the people, it says, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Remember that. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, it says, And again, speaking of the identical event, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Contradiction. No. If you study the Bible, you will see what I believe the Bible calls the mystery of iniquity. That's why a lot of people don't want to believe in God. They cannot understand evil, and neither can I. But there are some clues in here as how to God operates so that we don't impugn God. It says in one place that Satan provoked. In another place it says that God moved. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe, is the key verse that gives us more light on how that happens. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, verse 6, let's start from there. And now ye know what withholdeth, something is being held back, that he might be revealed in this time, this Antichrist will be revealed. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, and only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And that's where I believe that God is gracious to everyone. And God gives everyone a fair go, as the Australians would say. But there is a time when he removes his grace. In this place, I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in the world convicting the world of sin. The Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin. But there's a time when we hold down the truth in unrighteousness because we love darkness rather than light. That's the condemnation that comes into the world. Not because you were born a sinner. Not because you came from Adam. Not because you did bad things when you were a little kid or when you grew up. It's because when you knew God, when the light was revealed to you, You rejected it. And because you reject the light, God rejects you. God works in mysterious ways. And he allows evil. And he does good. And he uses both. And he uses Pharaoh. Some may say, what about the potter in Jeremiah chapter 18? Beloved, let's read it. Don't stay in one place. This is too deep a subject. Go to to the place to which it's referred. In Jeremiah chapter 18, he speaks about the potter. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought the work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel, as seemeth good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel. Who's he speaking to? 
Is he speaking to the pot? He said, oh, house of Israel, you were the one in the womb of Rebekah. You were the one that was that manner of people. I chose you to be a light to the pagan nations around you. Can I not do with you as this potter? The Apostle Paul is painting a marvelous picture of sovereign grace and sovereign God, but within his sovereignty. Get this, within his sovereignty, he has chosen to give man the choice. And you may say, as some say, well, how can man who is dead in sin make a choice? How can a dead man speak? Be careful when you bring analogies into the picture. If you really want to be technical, when the, when the scripture speaks of spiritual death, it speaks of separation from God. Isaiah 59. Your sins have separated you from God. It's not that God can't save you. Your sins have separated you from God. When the scripture says in Romans 6 that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, he says the wages of sin is death. What is that? It's eternal banishment and separation from God. But in his sovereignty, God has given man Above all the beings, as we heard the other night, God has given man a will. He's given man the ability to think. Let me drive another point home. To those that say that only God can put grace on somebody to wake him up, and it has nothing absolutely to do with man. We heard the other night, Brother Werner read, God gives grace unto the humble. God gives grace unto the humble. How can you receive grace if you're not humble? How can you receive grace if you're not humble. How can you be humble if you're dead in sin? As some people say. This all ought not to be necessary. But because of the different persuasions and because of the different way people start to read and listen to voices out there, to the frogs of Revelation 9, uh, 16... God wants us to live a quiet and peaceable life, believing the pure, simple doctrine, the simplicity that is in Christ. God gives grace to the humble. In the book of perhaps my favorite gospel, perhaps my favorite chapter, and every time life gets very hectic and, and confusing and wearisome and complicated, I like to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are ye who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. God seeks those that justify him. Not themselves, but that justify him. And justification is so beautiful and glorious. Not only does God acquit you of your sin. Not only does he take you out of prison, he takes you into his home. Only by his wonderful and marvelous grace. May the Lord bless his word.